When was the last time that you had your mindset majorly shift in some area? Uh, when you had a aha moment and a light bulb came on and you knew that the way that you thought, if not more, if not the whole way that you lived, had to change from then on. For many of you, this would have happened, of course, when you became a Christian. You had your whole worldview seismically turned upside down. Everything changed. But maybe major mindset shifts have happened for you in lesser ways and yet still significant ways. Maybe you read a book or an article that, that drastically changed your mind about something. Maybe you had a conversation with a friend or a mentor that made you see things in a different light, reshape things for you. Maybe you went through an experience that altered your perspective on something. Now, as Christians, there are certain core beliefs that we have that I believe we should never change our minds on. However, there are many many areas of life where we need to be flexible to change if God leads us there. Last year, I got together at a coffee house with a local pastor friend of mine, Jeff Scott, and he pitched me an idea that if I were honest with you, I was pretty skeptical of. But he invited me to explore some, some things with himself and a few others on a no-strings-attached trip with Compassion Canada. And I thought, why not? Little did I know the journey that that would spark over the last number of months. I, in an area where I thought I knew a fair amount, and I had some fairly well-formed ideas, I basically underwent a complete, just a crash course re-education. A total mindset shift, if you will. God completely reshaped my perspective when it comes to Christians and poverty alleviation. Yes, God is still working on me. And I know that he's still working on you too. Which is why I'm excited to share a little bit about that journey with you today and invite you to join me in as well. And this journey's not over for me. I'm still learning. I'm wanting to learn a lot more. And I hope that you'll be willing to step up and join me in learning how to care for the poor and needy around us. As always, we want to solidly ground what we're learning in God's Word. Right? We do not want to be swayed by worldly opinions or worldviews, philosophies. We want our lives to be shaped by the authority of Christ alone through Scripture alone. So, if you would, find a Bible around you, please, and we'll turn together to Luke chapter 4. Or we'll be flipping around a lot today, but the first place we'll be in is Luke 4. Today I want to start really a church-wide conversation on this topic, on alleviating poverty as Christ followers. I can only cover so much in one day, so this is going to be like a flyover at 30,000 feet. All right? But after today, what I want to do is that we're going to give you a number of opportunities to grow together as a church in this area, to go deeper, to study it more, to learn more, so we can take action in better ways. So today, though... My plan is to preach first, okay, to, to share 
with you some simple, clear, biblical concepts. And then I'm going to have my wife Angela come join me, and we're going to share together about what God's been showing us, especially through the trip we took back in May. We went to Guatemala, down in Central America. And then finally, we're going to give you an initial opportunity to respond through one avenue that we've personally seen God using to work in powerful ways in our world. It's an exciting way to partner with God's people in really breaking that cycle of poverty. If you're like me, I think that caring for the poor is something that is often in the back of our minds. Right? We know that this is something that we should probably be doing something about. And we know that there are, are plenty of verses in the Bible about giving to the needy, about caring for the needy. But within that obligation we feel, that semi-obligation, we also feel guilty about not doing much, right? or not doing enough. We also feel a lot of ignorance or confusion around this topic, on how can we do this well. Sometimes we may feel powerless to really affect any lasting change, any kind of, make any kind of difference. Or we feel frustrated and burned out by attempts that we've made that haven't necessarily gone as well. But what is God's perspective on all this? What is his view on poverty? Should we feel an obligation to help alleviate it? And if so, why? Let's start with a most simple foundational point, all right? And that is that God loves the poor. Very simple. God cares deeply about the poor. He loves the poor. Now, I could probably quote from a hundred different places in the Bible to prove this point. From the laws that God gave the people of Israel to help care for the needy that were in their midst, to the promises that God gave directly to the poor and needy people or to the severe warnings that he gives to the wealthy or powerful that may attempt to exploit the poor. A few examples I'll give you from the Psalms. In Psalm 9.18, it is promised, For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Psalm 14.6 says that the Lord is the refuge of those who are poor. And in Psalm 86, 1, David prayed, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. He's appealing directly to God's implied care and compassion for the destitute. Now, pop quiz. What is the greatest demonstration of love that God has ever shown? Jesus, right? Okay, you all know that answer. What's the greatest demonstration of love? Jesus. Follow-up question to that. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did Jesus come to earth? As part of our preparation for our Guatemala trip, we were asked to read a book called When Helping Hurts by Steve Corbett and Brian Ficker. Some of you have, have read this book. In fact, about six or seven years ago, Lynn and Lynn, who are usually here at the front, actually led a class on this book for us as a church. For whatever reason, I didn't read it at that time. I wish I had. 
And this is really one of the big catalysts of rethinking things in a biblical way for me. But they start the book off by asking that question, why did Jesus come to earth? And most of you would probably answer something like, well, Jesus came to save sinners, right? Or Jesus came to live, die, and rise again. He came to bring us grace and truth. Amen, amen, and amen, right? Scripture says much many times. You're absolutely correct on that. But that's not the only reason. And let's see what Jesus says himself here in Luke 4. Right, he's in Nazareth here, his hometown, where everyone knew him as Joe and Mary's kid. But Jesus' ministry was just getting started now, so he wanted to reintroduce himself as more than just that, more than just the local kid. So he seizes his opportunity during a service in the local synagogue. Start with me in verse 16. Verse 16. And he, Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now it says there, he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. That wouldn't have been very surprising. What would have been stunning is what he said next. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is like, yeah, that scripture I just read, that was talking about me. Now, people didn't take too kindly to that. By the end of the day, they were trying to kill Jesus. But Jesus chose this prophecy for a reason. And you notice what it said? Look at verse 18 again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who were oppressed. The poor, captives, blind, and oppressed are really just a good summary for all marginalized people. And Jesus came bearing good news for people in all of these kinds of life situations. And we might wonder, though, wasn't Jesus just being figurative here? Right? Didn't he really come to save the spiritually marginalized? Well, that's true. But it's incomplete. We can see it if you look at Jesus' life and his ministry, the way that he cared for the needy around him, and how he was frequently ministering to people's spiritual and physical needs all the time. Beyond this, we firmly believe as Christians that Jesus is coming back one day. And when he does, that he will right all injustices in this world. Therefore, 
Most scholars, when they look at this passage, believe that when Jesus quoted from this prophecy, he fully intended to refer to both. Both literal, physical needs and figurative, spiritual needs. In reality, Jesus came to earth to inaugurate his kingdom, to begin the redemption of all things. So, when we say that Jesus came to save us, we've got to make sure that we never add an only to that. As glorious as our redemption is, and our salvation is our greatest need, it is by no means the only reason that Jesus came. It's part of the grand picture of what God was accomplishing through Christ. The gospel, when we talk about the gospel, the gospel really is more narrow than that. The gospel is the good news about Jesus, how he lived, died, and rose again. That's the gospel in a nutshell. But the gospel has cosmic ramifications that are far bigger than just us. And here in Luke 4, we clearly see that another part of Jesus' purpose was to love the poor. Yes, some people over the years have abused that truth, as you can with any truth, and they've elevated Jesus' social concerns higher than his spiritual concerns. We have to guard against that, because really, that's a gospel that's emptied of its power. But we also have to guard against meeting people's spiritual needs to the neglect of all other needs. Because lest we be saved by Jesus only to be unwilling to follow his example. It stands to reason, if Jesus, God's greatest display of love, came to love the needy, then it is clear that this is something that is near and dear to God's heart. And we might further deduce that in his love, God wants to deliver them from their poverty. Obviously, Jesus is implying that that poverty, captivity, blindness, and oppression are bad things, right? These are examples of human brokenness, not human flourishing. And so to have good news for them is to say that there is hope to be freed from them. God loves the poor. He wants them free. However, there's a very important question that we have to ask here. And that is, who are the poor? Or what does it mean to be poor? You may have just assumed an answer to this already. But this was a a big eye-opener to me. In When Helping Hurts, the book I was talking about, they referenced an exhaustive study done by the World Bank in which they asked, 60,000 poor people in 60 different in, uh, in low-income countries, this question, what is poverty? What is poverty? How would you answer that question? What is poverty? In all likelihood, you would say it's a, a lack of material things or a lack of money, things like, or maybe things like food, clean water, housing, medicine, health care, and so on. But, those make up only a portion of what it means to live in poverty. 
Here's an example, just a sampling of what it means to be poor in the poor's own words. They quote, For a, a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. Or, we cannot afford to invite anyone to our house and we feel uncomfortable visiting others without bringing a present. The lack of contact leaves us depressed, creates a constant feeling of unhappiness and a sense of low self-esteem. Or, if you are poor, you will always be poor. The authors then conclude, they say, well, poor people mention having a lack of material things. They tend to describe their condition in far more psychological and social terms than North Americans. Poor people typically talk in terms of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, depression, social isolation, and voicelessness. You see, poverty is very multifaceted. The book goes on to quote from Bryant Myers, who lays a, a good foundation for understanding poverty by describing the four biblical relationships that God intends all humans to have. Of course, first, most crucially, we are intended to have a relationship with God, a loving relationship, a, a relationship of worship to him. But we also have a relationship with self. We treat ourselves in certain ways. We clearly are meant to have relationships with other people. And finally, we're, have to have relation, we're made to have a relationship with the rest of creation as well as stewards over creation. Those are the four relationships, God, self, others, and creation. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we can see a picture of what God intended for those four relations, the paradise he intended them to live in, in, in harmony, in perfect harmony. However... We don't live in a Genesis 1 and 2 world, do we? We live in a Genesis 3 world where the fall has happened. After the fall, none of the four relationships would ever be the same. They become distorted and damaged by fear, by shame, by blame, by all the, the curses that God placed on it. The poverty is essentially the brokenness that results from all those broken relationships. The fall led to spiritual poverty, material poverty, community poverty, and so much more. Bryant Myers then explains that poverty is the result of relationships that, relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all its meanings. All of this should help us better answer the question now of who are the poor? The answer, everyone is poor. Everyone is poor, obviously to varying degrees. But everyone is poor. We are all impoverished by the fall. As it says in the book, 
Due to the comprehensive nature of the fall, every human being is poor in the sense of not experiencing these four relationships in the way that God intended. For some people, this results in material poverty. That is, they're not having sufficient money to provide for the basic physical need of themselves and their families. But for other people, the effects of these broken relationships are manifested in different ways. The fall really happened, and it is wreaking havoc in all of our lives. We are all broken, just in different ways. It's so easy for us to be blind to the multifaceted poverty that is all around us and even inside of us. In fact, our material wealth, wealth is often precisely what blinds us. Revelation 3.17, there the church in Laodicea was told, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Why is all this important? For a number of reasons. I, I'm not going to go into super depth on them today. But one, if poverty is so multifaceted and diverse, our response to it needs to be the same. So, for example, just throwing money at a problem will not solve close to everything. We also need to stop seeing the alleviation of poverty as an us and them thing. Right? It's something that is common to all of humanity. So we've got to lose our sense of superiority. The book continues by saying, Until we embrace our mutual brokenness, our work with low-income people is likely to do far more harm than good. One of the biggest problems in many poverty alleviation efforts is that their design and implementation exacerbates the poverty of being uh, the right economically rich, their God complexes, that's us, and the poverty of being of the economically poor, their feelings of inferiority and shame. The systems are created to just perpetuate these things, it's a big problem. Additionally, we need to constantly see poverty as a result of the fall. It's an outcome of sin. Sometimes it's the direct result of someone's personal sins, their laziness or in their indifference. Often, though, it's the result of sins that go back generations. Or sins of communities. Sins of cultures. Or sins of just other people. Like oppression or injustice. Or even just the indifference of the materially wealthy. And the fact is, the reasons for people's poverty are usually extremely complex. And we should never just quickly judge someone as unworthy of care. Many of us are taught, whether explicitly or implicitly, that the poor are poor because they're lazy. Sometimes. But consider one of the families we met in Guatemala. We were brought to visit their home and where uh, the mom was taking care of her three kids, and the dad was nowhere to be seen. And we initially thought, well, maybe he's absent or irresponsible. But far from it. 
In fact, he was out at work at that very moment. And as the story unfolded about what he does, we found that his job was to collect fares on a local bus. And the, the fares that they got would go directly to paying his wages for the day. However, they lived in an area of just astronomical crime rates. And nearly every day, his bus would be robbed. They'd be held up at gunpoint. And not, not only putting this man's life in danger nearly every day, but they had no option but just to hand over all of their hard-earned money. Now, do you see? This family's poverty is a result of sin, but not their own. Don't be quick to judge, to assume guilt. And here's the other reason it matters to identify everyone as poor. Because we need to see ourselves as recipients of God's rescuing love. We need to see ourselves as recipients of God's love. God loves the poor. And you, as the poor, were loved by God. If you're, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The page number is there on the screen if you're using a pew Bible. In this passage, Paul is encouraging the Corinthian church to give generously in order to meet the needs of, a, of poor churches in Judea. Read with me. Once you find it, I'll be starting in verse 1. Paul says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's where he's writing. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, that is an awesome attitude to have for giving. When was the last time you begged earnestly to give to someone? That's what they were doing. But it says they did this because they saw the, the favor, the blessing it was to give. Continue reading. They begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we had urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So, giving to meet others' needs is an act of grace. And believers are told to excel in this. We are to excel in giving in order to prove that our love for others is genuine. Look at verse 8. It says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So, it's important to see this as a privilege, not an obligation or a command. And why? Verse 9. For you know... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That should frame everything about our perspective on poverty alleviation. God's grace to us. God, it says, demonstrated his grace by entering our poverty himself in Christ. Even though he was richer than we can imagine, he gave it all up. It says, for our sake. And why? So that we, by his poverty, might become rich. So, so we could trade places, essentially. He gave of himself to incomprehensible lengths, all the way to dying on a cross in order to give us true and lasting and unfathomable wealth. And that's not just material wealth. If you're still living in the poverty of brokenness of sin today, you need this more than anything. God can give you forgiveness and peace with Him despite your sin. God can cleanse you from your sin, make you whole, giving you a, a new heart, a fresh start. And God's Spirit can start restoring all these broken things in our lives, these relationships that are broken with others or with creation or with ourselves, and of course, with God. If you will just repent of your sins, run to Jesus in faith, all of these riches here can be yours now. And if you have already been saved, you started to experience this already. God's redemption, His generosity. Then part of living out your faith includes caring for those who are less fortunate. This is a gospel issue. We give because He gave. We love because he loved. And this leads directly to my next point for us today. That God's people should care about what God cares about. God's people really should naturally care about what God cares about. I hope this point is a no-brainer. As we are transformed by God's grace and dwelt by God's Spirit, meant to be conformed to the image of God's Son, obviously we should start caring about what God cares about. But if not, the Bible is very clear. God's people should care about the needy. Keep a finger or a paper there in 2 Corinthians, because we're going to come back there. Flip back, way back to Psalm 41. Psalm 41. Just briefly, this passage shows how much loving the poor delights God, how much he loves to bless it. Just look at the first couple verses of this psalm. Psalm 41, 
Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. What a promise, right? Blessed is the one who considers the poor. You get a, a direct infusion of God's care for you. In Galatians 2, Paul talks about being welcomed to the church by Peter, James, and John. And how when, they, when he was sent out to preach the gospel, they made one request of him. Just one. Now, if you were making one request of a brand new apostle, what would, that, what would you ask of him? Maybe, please preach the gospel. Right? Stick to the scriptures. Depend on the Holy Spirit. Something like that. But what did they ask Paul? He says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. The Apostle James also tells us, right in the middle of a challenge to love needy believers, he says, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? God's people should care about what God cares about. However, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that this hasn't been our strongest point. Historically, I would say the church has actually been pretty good, pretty great at caring for the poor. But I feel that the modern evangelical church especially has somewhat dropped the ball on this. In order, and, it, and we had good motives, in order to protect right doctrine, in order to protect, to guard the gospel, at times we swung the pendulum too far. Leaving the social responsibility of God's people to to churches who sadly neglected the spiritual side, created this division. We've also relinquished a lot of poverty work to our governments. Now, I do not think it's wrong at all for governments to play a part. But, I do think it's wrong for God's people to not play a part. See, I believe that, that God's preferred tool in poverty alleviation is his church, especially the local church. Like I said, we are not his only tool. He can use all these other things, these organizations, governments, charities, whatever. But no other organization is as equipped to address the comprehensive needs of people than the church. For example, you will not find governments trying to meet spiritual poverty needs. But on the other hand, God has actually empowered the church for this. Here's our final point today. That the church has been generously equipped to show God's compassion. The church has been generously equipped to show God's compassion. Back in 2 Corinthians, skip forward one chapter with me. Chapter 9, Paul's still talking about the same thing. He's still talking about giving generously. 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 5, he says this. 
So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. So again, he doesn't want forced gifts. He wants willing gifts. And then he's like, don't you want the blessing that comes from giving? Verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is to motivate us. You want to reap bountifully in life? You sow bountifully. You send it out. And we need to want to give. It should just flow from us. Look what he, how he continues. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He's like, God is able. This is possible for you. And then notice what he says next. See if you can see why we have been blessed so much. All right? Why have we been blessed so much? Verse 9. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Did you catch that? You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Ultimately, the reason that we've been blessed is so God is thanked and praised. Right? That's the ultimate reason there. But what produces the thankfulness is not our receiving blessings and being thankful for them, but our generosity. In other words, if we are rich in any sense of the word, we have been made rich for a reason. Just living in North America near guarantees us to be some of the wealthiest people on the planet. And even better, if you're a Christian, you've been blessed eternally. So why are we enriched? You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Now, as we've read along, I, I'm sure you've noticed that the last thing that Paul wants to do is guilt trip people into giving. He's very clear. I don't want to guilt trip you either, because guilt might motivate you to give a little bit now, but that won't last, and it will never change your heart. Christians are to be generous people because of how much we've been blessed. We give not out of guilt, but out of grace. We give not out of guilt, but out of grace. Grace is what changes our hearts. 
And we should be then generous in meeting any kinds of needs that people have. John Piper points out that we often set up a false dilemma of choosing between truth and mercy. When he says, what I see all around us today in the Christian church is the tendency to care only about one or the other. These are the two camps. I'm an activist for the cause of justice and life and wholeness and shalom and flourishing. Or two, I'm not going to be distracted by all that. I'm going to rescue people from hell. Here's what I want. I want all of us to say, we will not make that choice. We will say this sentence and mean it. We care about all suffering now, especially eternal suffering later. That's our calling. We are to care about alleviating all the suffering we can, even as we make the distinction that eternal suffering is worse and it's the top priority, we will speak the truth while showing love and fighting all of the effects of the fall. We will not make that choice. It's for he- us here at Calvary. We've had a, a handful of people in our congregation that I deeply appreciate and applaud. Regardless of how effective we've been as a church, there are those among us who have been faithful in this. People like Tim and Tess, who lead our compassion ministry, those who gather to make sandwiches for the Ottawa Mission once a month, like they will be doing today. Those who, uh, who, give, uh, who, may, who pack shoeboxes, those who give to meet the resettlement needs of refugees, those who give generously to the benevolent fund whenever you hear of a need. Bravo! However, I also think there is a ton of room for growth of, in this area as a church. Please understand, this is not to make any of us feel guilty, but many of us are doing nothing in this area. I also think we have a lot of good questions, right? We have a lot of maybe ignorance here. We have a lot of things that we want answered. Are we being effective in our care for the needy? Is what we're doing helpful or is it harmful? Are we, should we actually be doing? Fill in the blank. And what can we do to better care for the poor? How can we actually make a dent at alleviating poverty here in Ottawa or around the world? How can we do this? I don't have all the answers for you this morning, though I will give you one idea shortly, but I am making a commitment now to explore, to learn, and to journey with you on this so that we can grow together as a church. Now there's one final clarification that it's crucial that I need to make here before we shift gears a little bit. As we generously show compassion to those in need, our first priority is to other believers. And to put it another way, our primary obligation is to our own family. Do you remember Phil's sermon a month ago on the, the famous passage in Matthew 25? in which Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. It's caring for Jesus' brothers and sisters that matters most. 
In Galatians 6, 9 and 10 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see that? Good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. To expand on this point, we, as wealthy first world believers, have been greatly enriched today. And there are churches, brothers and sisters, around the world with great needs. We have been enriched in every way to be generous to them in every way. So that their poverty can be alleviated. So that we can all reap blessings that Scripture talks about. And so that more than anything else, God will be thanked. And God will be praised. So with all that in mind, I'm going to invite my wife up, Angela, up. We're going to share with you about the trip that we took to Guatemala with Compassion Canada two months ago. We'll just get uh, set up here. It wasn't a missions trip, but it was, it was called an exposure trip or a vision trip. And it was especially designed for pastors and their wives in order to, to help us see and understand Compassion's work on the ground. Uh, you might have heard of Compassion before, maybe at a concert or a conference. Um, they are an international Christian relief organization specializing in child sponsorship. And Angela's going to share just a bit of what we did while we were there. We visited three child sponsorship centers, which were actually local churches who have partnered with Compassion. Um, these kids attended the church several times a week for schools, meals, and more. Um, at one of the centers, we got to also see a child survival program, which enrolls young mothers or, or uh, young women that are pregnant um, and would take care of them and their babies up to uh, three years old. Um, it taught them how to care for their babies and for themselves, a, a self-care and, and baby care that a lot of us just learn from our parents. They don't know those things for some reason. Um, we got to do three home visits to families of sponsored children. Those were our favorite times, going and visiting the homes. Um, talking with the kids, their parents, siblings, other relatives and caseworkers. So um, uh, some volunteers from the church. Um, learning about their lives, their joys and pains, and the way the sponsorship program is helping them. We also visited the offices of a center and the Guatemala National Office. I was actually quite surprised to not see one white person in these administrative roles. They're all, like, uh, everyone there is our Guatemalan, um, reaching their own people. Uh, we got to see th their thorough financial responsibility and uh, record keeping and the accountability they use. Um, we and others got to meet our sponsored children and take them on a fun trip to a zoo that was actually quite, quite exceptional. So we, yeah. we had a... It was, it was a good time. It was fun. Yeah. 
I, I was familiar with Compassion before we sponsored a, a child in Indonesia for years. Um, and I thought I knew a lot about child sponsorship as well. But I was blown away when I actually saw what they're doing, especially by how impressive Compassion is as a ministry and the work they're doing. Uh, Compassion says that they have three distinctives that set them apart, and we saw each one of these in action. First, they say they are unapologetically Christ-centered. Christ-centered. They get the whole, we will not make that choice between truth and mercy. Over the years, they've actually had experts come to them. They've had audits done, and they have had experts come and say, you know, you could secure a lot more support, a lot more money, both privately and corporately, if you just downplayed the whole Jesus side of things. And they're like, they don't get the point. Jesus is the point. And so they rejected that. Their, their motto is releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. And you even have this banner up here that says, the difference is Jesus. That's like, this is what they're all about. And so they do not, they do not only seek to meet the, meet the physical needs of people, but their spiritual needs as well. Compassion's second distinctive is that they are church-based. And this is one of the things that I was most amazed by when we went there. What we saw was not some big NGO doing relief work in the third world. We saw local churches doing kingdom work in their own backyards, in their own worlds, in their own communities. Uh, they stated very clearly, Compassion doesn't care about furthering their own brand. What they want to do is empower the local church to do the work of the church. And this is huge, because as I said, God has equipped the church for this task. And this is also huge because it protects them and us from savior complexes or God complexes. We are not their saviors. Their savior is already present there. He's already there. He, he was active and working long before compassion was there, and he'll continue working through the church with or without us. Finally, compassion's third distinctive is that they are child-focused. Child-focused. They're like, why focus on children, right? Why not why not sponsor families or adults or something else? Well, this is a strategic decision aimed at stopping the cycle of poverty that so many are trapped in. Study after study have, has found that this is a highly effective way to actually bring a stop to that cycle and get people on a new track. In Compassion's words, each child receives the holistic care they deserve to realize their full God-created potential in life. It is only through a careful blend of physical, social, economic, and spiritual care that a child can fully mature in every facet of life and transcend a legacy of poverty. So, may I ask, well, what does child sponsorship actually do? Well, it provides food and health care and the meeting of those material needs, but it's way bigger than that. It provides education, provides job training, abuse prevention, biblical teaching. We saw all of these in action when we were there. It also gives opportunities for them to form excellent relationships with other children, with godly leaders, with the church, and with their sponsors, whoever's sponsoring them around the world. And I am not exaggerating when I say that perhaps the biggest thing that it gives children is hope. It gives them the ability to look beyond their the circumstances they were born in and to dream and to foresee a promising future. It gives them hope. It's amazing that all this can be done 
for $41 a month from us, less than the cost of a cup of coffee a day. Um, now you may think, isn't that just throwing money at a, situ at a, at a solution? N no, for a couple reasons. First, the money empowers the centers to meet a variety of needs, not just financial. Uh, and also in child sponsorship, you're asked to do more than write a check. The writing of letters is something that I simply didn't understand before. I had no idea how significant writing these letters could be. They don't, th these letters are the face of your sponsorship to the children. They don't see you as a donor, they see you as a person. So-and-so in Canada knows I exist. They, 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 they care about me, they love me, they're praying for me. You're giving them a valuable relationship which they cherish. And these letters actually play a big part in giving them hope. We were at one house, we were, when we asked the kids about their sponsor, the, 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 the little boy, he ran into, into his shack of a house that they've had to move every year for his whole life. Um, they, he pulled out this dirty stack of papers that he's obviously read over and over again. He said, this is from my sponsor. And I, I, I looked at, at uh, it was in English, and so I could read it. And it was this guy in Colorado that was just taking a, a, a motorcycle trip through the mountains, and he was describing to this boy about how that was and how God was teaching him on, the, on his motorcycle more about, about uh, walking with Jesus. Um, I'm not joking. This was like his most prized possession, these letters. Maybe, you're already, maybe you already sponsor a child, like, like we did. This is something you can do now. Start writing more letters. Develop that relationship. Compassion actually makes it really easy now. You can just go online and just type it out and you know, attach a picture, send. You, know? um, if, uh, you have no idea the impact that this is making to change a child's life forever. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, we want to finish up by telling you how we envision us taking action. One of the coolest things about this trip was getting to do this with other Ottawa people. There were uh, four other Ottawa churches or ministries that went with us. And we got to dream a bit about what we might be able to do together as the church in Ottawa. See, we, we might be able to do a little bit, accomplish a little bit as Calvary, but only so much. But what might God do when his people work together in unity towards this goal? God loves it when his people work together. And it's not just us here either, right? We, what could it look like for the church in Ottawa to work to partner with the church in Guatemala? Right? Could we end up we don't know exactly what this relationship is going to look like, but could we end up sponsoring huge portions of kids from the same community? Right? Not, on this end, not only providing camaraderie, a common goal, but also making it easier to arrange for visits to sponsored children, more convenient to send gifts to them, other kinds of support. Could we band together and sponsor the start of a new child survival prog program, the Moms and Babies program, and get, seeing a, a whole new community of mothers and babies reached with care that they desperately need? We don't have all the answers. We don't have concrete plans right now yet. But I think we do have the start of a vision, which is super exciting for us. And we're, what we're doing is we're getting the ball rolling now. All the churches in Ottawa have done this over the summer now. I believe we're actually the last one to do this. But by starting to sponsor children from the same communities together as the church in Ottawa. You might ask, why Guatemala? 
To which I respond, why not Guatemala? <laughs> there were a number of reasons that this was chosen as an ideal community to partner with. But I also want to say how impressed I was by the holistic ministry um, in Guatemala itself. We're going to show you a short video that summarizes how they're ministering there. Gives you a little snapshot of the country and the work that Compassion has been doing there. They've been targeting those five areas of needs and they've really identified that as where they want to focus and help improve people's well-being. There are two direct ways that I want to encourage you to consider taking action this morning. One, like we talked about, is through sponsoring a child starting today. You may be skeptical of that, I certainly was before, but not anymore though. I've seen it firsthand and the, the huge impact that it's making in people's lives. By agreeing to do this, you'd be making an investment in that child's life, which not only pays dividends for you and them now, but also in eternity. There will be other opportunities that we're going to give you to do this as a church, but if the Spirit has pricked your heart today, why wait? Why wait? We have a, a table at the back with a number of profiles. Alan and Kathy are there to help you out there. The majority of the children on the table are all from those communities in Guatemala that we visited together. So our sponsored children could be neighbors or classmates. I've got a, a couple up here. I got Agnelli, girl, five years old, cute little blue dress. Uh, Alexander turned five yesterday, July 14th, and uh, adorable kids. It would be great to get them sponsors. There's a, a bunch of others as well. Uh, in fact, for one person today, got a special packet for you that they were able to secure for us. This is Michelle, our sponsored child, Brandon's sister. So our own personal sponsored child down there, his sister, Michelle. She needs a sponsor. She's four years old. And an adorable little girl would be great to get her a sponsor as well. If you want to sponsor a child from somewhere else in the world, that's okay. We have a number of other profiles there who are from around the world, including a stack we grabbed from the Philippines. We knew that might be special for our church as well. Uh, if, you're on the, if you're watching on the live feed and you want to sponsor kids, send me a message. We will reserve one for you. Um, fun thing, for the first people first few people that um, pick up a packet today. We have wonderful gifts that we brought back from Guatemala. These were given to us by the churches and by the head office there. And we just, uh, they wanted to bless our church with them. So we got some coffee here, some hacky sacks and some cool things. So for the first few people, this is not a bribe. <laughs> we just want to pass on the blessing. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, uh, if you do that, Grab a packet in the back, come show us, and we'll give you that gift, all right? If you, feel that, yeah, if you feel that you simply cannot afford that monthly cost, that $41 a month, then I'd say grab a friend, right? Grab a group of people. Go in on it together. There's nothing wrong with doubling up the love, right? 
If you already sponsor a child, maybe you sponsor with another organization, I'm not going to put down any groups today that are doing good work, but you may want to consider switching to Compassion. If you want to know reasons for that, I can talk to you about that in person. Uh, and if you already sponsor a child with Compassion, uh, there's two things to consider. Uh, one, perhaps you can take on a second child or more. Uh, I know most of us can afford to. Two, uh, also something we weren't aware of before is something called Sponsorship Plus, which you, you can top up your existing sponsorship by like 9 or $10, and that goes into an urgent needs fund. We actually um, saw this in work. There was a, a, a little girl who had her hand in a splint, and from birth her hand was crippled like this, but because of that urgent needs fund, she now is straight and she can move fingers. Her mom was just over the moon happy that... that um, that Compassion was able to do that for her daughter. Um, also, for, for, you, for the, the young working class, you 15-year-olds, 14-year-olds, you might think, I can't afford this. I make minimum wage for like five hours a week or something. When I was 15 years old is when I picked up my first packet. And by God's grace, I was able to make that payment for 20 years. Um, so don't, don't discount the impact that you can have as a teenager in this, in this area. And finally, whether or not you sponsor a child today, maybe you're like me and you want to learn and grow in this area. I know that I really want to. So we're going to be offering several small group opportunities over the next few months. I'll be using a couple different studies, but we're starting with two summer groups right off the bat, studying a series called eyes to see and this is going to be just a six-week commitment over different time periods you can see it all in the insert in your bulletin there and we're very very open to starting other groups as well so if those don't work for you and you want to get in one maybe you want to help lead one maybe you want to host one please let us know we're going to work to make sure we can do this all together we want to grow together so that we can better serve others as god's people but the one thing that i want to leave you with is to re-emphasize the fact that we are not poverty saviors all right we're not swooping in saving the day when we visited in guatemala it was so evident that god was already there he was already at work he was working through his people in amazing ways as he's doing really around the world in one home that we visited we were welcomed by hospitable joyful people along with many animals, not joking. There were ducks, chickens, cats, dogs, pregnant parakeets, and pigeons being the ceiling fans, like flying over our head nonstop. But the, the family there consisted of a single mother with a young child, along with her parents, who were believers, though the young mom was not yet. She had been widowed when her baby was 10 months old. And the baby had to be hospitalized with pneumonia at one. And so she had been through quite a lot of tragedy already. But we had also learned how the workers from the local church there had been constantly reaching out to her, serving her, ministering to her family in her time of need. And as we got ready to leave, they were just so thankful. And, and this woman wanted to, to play us a song from her phone. And she sang along to it, and the lyrics were something they were translated for us they were something to the effect of god is here i can follow him he hears my prayers 
As soon as the song was done, this was the neatest part, one of the workers stepped right in and just shared the gospel with her on the spot as we watched, saying how true the song was and that they could follow Jesus now, that he does hear their prayers. We didn't see a, a conversion happen right that moment. We saw Jesus' church in action. And we saw the hope that he was bringing through his people, even in the midst of poverty around the world. God is at work. God is moving. And he invites us to play a part in that. As 2 Corinthians 9 finishes up, so thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you move in us today in our hearts? Would you please help us to follow you? Whatever that means, whatever sacrifice that calls for, whatever opposition that may lead to, Help us take up our cross and follow you out of love for you and out of love for our neighbors who you love so dearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.